Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. And you'll notice in none of this did I say anything about subsidies or or credits, right? <laughs> right. So that's that for us is a key part of this equation, right? And and it comes back to this idea that methane has energy, methane has value, and that's what allows this whole thing to work is because we have the energy from that methane that's allowing the capture of nitrogen in the production of fertilizer that drives the economics of the process, and this can be then a profitable operation for everyone in that value chain without relying on external artificial subsidies that may be there, may not be there. And so for us, that's a key part when we think about what are technologies that can actually scale to global levels that can have impacts on climate, they have to be self-sustaining and sustainable. And the, I'll use, you know, the first definition of a sustainable business is one that is profitable, right? If, you, if right. the system doesn't make money, the business doesn't profit, it doesn't matter how good for the environment it's going to be. That business is not going to be around. It's not going to actually have an impact. And it has to be sustainable. It has to be valuable to a whole suite of stakeholders who can find the same benefit from it. And yeah, I love that reframe. So often when we think of sustainability at this point, you know, it calls all of kind of the green elements to mind. But it's also, you know, good to re-expand that and be like, okay, like sustainability also means for the people out of working at a company, you know, is that sustainable for their lifestyle? Is it generative to their energy and their passion? Alrighty, Josh, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's wonderful to have you on. Oh, thanks, Nick. For, thanks for having me. I always like to dive right into the deep end. Why don't you give folks kind of the zero to 10 on what Windfall Bio is, what the mission is, and how you got started working on this problem? Yeah, so Windfall Bio is a nature-based technology company where we take natural organisms from the soil that are able to reduce methane emissions. Methane is one of the worst greenhouse gases out there and actually turn them into valuable products for agricultural systems, uh, basically replacing synthetic fertilizers. So my background as a biochemist and a biologist, I've been working in Silicon Valley in industrial biotech for the last 20 years. And I'm really excited to be able to start applying, you know, what I've learned in that industrial biotech space into the climate space. Excellent. Yeah. And it sounds like this is, you know, already going to hit on multiple kind of grand climate challenges. Methane, obviously being the first one that you introduced is a significant one. I think by some estimates, something that's like up to 30% of observable global warming that's already been experienced by our planet over the past, you know, two centuries since the industrial res revolution is attributable to methane. And yet it often feels like, you know, all of the attention flows to CO2 and rightfully so to a certain extent, that's a big component of the conversation, but I'm certainly glad that we're able to have this conversation and give folks some perspective on just how important methane is to all this. And then also potentially, you know, maybe a little nitrous oxide conversation as well, inherent to displacing need for synthetic fertilizer. So the table is set and a lot of good stuff for us to talk about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that's right. The carbon dioxide really has dominated the conversation. And a lot of that, I mean, don't get me wrong, we need to deal with carbon dioxide as well. 100%. Yeah. But, you know, I think a lot of the nuance has gotten lost in the discussion in terms of, you know, convincing regulators and stakeholders and politicians on to do something. You know, we need a simple, easy message. But the reality is a lot messier, right? And there is a lot more that's happening to the climate than just carbon dioxide. And so, like you said, 30% you know, or more of warming is coming from methane, but less than 5% of funding and technology solutions out there are being directed towards methane. 
compared to CO2. So there's a big gap there. The other benefit to methane, so methane, it's a very short-lived gas in the atmosphere. It only lasts for about 10 to 12 years. So that was another reason why it wasn't really focused on 50 years ago, whenever, you know, the first climate regulations were coming out, everyone was, you know, like to think like, well, climate change, this is a hundred year problem. This is our grandchildren's grandchildren's problem. Right. You know, we can take long-term views and just go really slowly because it's not an immediate problem. Obviously that's not true anymore. Right. And we've, <laughs> and we've spent so much time looking at long-term solutions that we're, we're blowing past all of our short-term targets. And, you know, if we have targets in 2030, 2040, 2050, we need to look at short-term gases. Those are actually the, our best chance of meeting those short-term targets to give us room to hit the long-term targets. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I often, sometimes it might not be the most, you know, I'm still working on kind of the terminology and the phrasing here, but I sometimes think of, you know, traumatic methane mitigation over the next two decades as something that could really like grant cover to the deeper decarbonization that needs to happen. It's like, there's a lot of technologies that are excellent, that are being developed to reduce CO2 emissions across all kinds of different industries and sectors. But just like solar and wind and EV batteries have enjoyed over the past 10 years, they need another 10 or 20 years to mature and get more efficient and come yep. down the cost curve. And meaningfully reducing methane emissions would be a great way to decelerate global warming to kind of provide more time for everything else that needs to happen. Yep. And it not just decelerates, it can actually reverse in the short term. So, so meth... So the CO2 goes in the atmosphere and then it stays there forever, right? So it's not a rate problem, it's an accumulation problem. For hundreds of years at yeah, minimum. Yeah, yeah. but methane's different, right? Because methane, it gets produced quickly, but it disappears quickly. So what you actually have is a, just dropping into science terms, it's a dynamic equilibrium. So it's a difference of rates. And so what that means, though, is very small changes in the rate of production or the rate of destruction can have big impacts on the concentration in the air. It's actually moving around all the time in dynamic equilibrium. And our problem is we have gone out of, we haven't been tracking methane. And so methane's actually been going up in the atmosphere very over just the last 20 or 30 years. And it's been increasing a lot. And that's, again, that can be a very small difference in the rates of, of production and absorption that's happening on the ground. And that's both a problem because, you know, small differences that we're not paying attention have big outsized impacts on temperature. But the flip side is a positive where if we come in and start making smaller incremental changes, right, those have big outsized impacts on climate and can actually create meaningful reductions in cooling of the atmosphere by reducing the concentration in the atmosphere. So again, small changes in the rate of output will actually reduce the concentration in the atmosphere. Whereas with CO2, like the models show, even if we stopped all CO2 emissions, you know, tomorrow, the concentration in the atmosphere would still go up and we would still have warming for the next 20 or 30 years increasing before the CO2 actually starts to come down. Whereas yeah. methane, if we stopped it today, the you know concentration in the atmosphere would drop almost immediately. So that's a huge benefit in terms of short term. The other side, again, because the warming of methane is so much higher, like if I'm going to pay money to capture a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere... I would much rather, you know, if I'm going to say I've got a million dollars to spend, I can capture a thousand tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. Sure. If I capture a thousand tons of, of CO2, <laughs> right, that's the equivalent of a thousand tons of CO2. If I capture a thousand tons of methane, that's almost a hundred thousand tons of CO2 equivalent in terms of warming. So yeah, if we take like a 20 year time scale perspective, GWP 20, right. Yeah. And if we take it, yeah, shorter windows, which is again, if we, if we're dealing with 10 year, targets for 2030, we should be looking at, at shorter timescales. 
And so right. the, the impact that I can have for my capital, my resources, my effort that I'm spending on climate is vastly amplified relative to these longer term solutions. And again, we need to do both. I'm, I'm not saying at all right. one, one or the other, but yeah, there's a big opportunity there. Yeah, always a yes and conversation. It's tricky to get caught in that scarcity mindset of, you know, we we can only pick one or the other, but I don't think, I th certainly don't think that's the way that we should be thinking about it. Yeah, this has been a really, I think, you know, hopefully for our listeners, a very compelling kind of world building on why methane is a very valuable space in which to be working. Before we dive deeper into the business and the technology itself, I'd be curious just to, you know, pinpoint when in your kind of trajectory of your career, you decided this was a problem that you were both well-suited to approach and, and quite interested in tackling. So yeah, I started working in methane around the 2010 timeframe. So like I said, I'm a biotechnologist. I was spending a lot of time looking at the ways that we were starting to use biology to create more sustainable systems for products, chemicals, and foods, and things of that nature. And so the 2010s was right around the time where we saw a lot of the biofuels industry taking off. And you saw a lot of you know the RFS subsidies from the US government to turn corn sugars into ethanol and a push for, you know, again, taking sugars to petrochemical replacements and fuel replacements. Sure. And that was one that, you know, I think it never made a lot of sense to me because we're taking sugar that's expensive and turning it into fuel, which is cheap. Right. And economics 101 tells you that that's not going to be something that really <laughs> yeah. is, is something that works without the subsidies from the government. And then you also ran into a lot of the food versus fuel debates where right. food prices started going up and, you know, people need to eat. So, you know, is that really a good trade off? Yeah. Lots of staggering stats come out of came, came out of that area. I think it's still something like only like 10 percent of corn in the U.S. is actually used feed humans or it might even be used as feed in general. I don't know, but something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was really challenging, but that was sort of looking at, well, why is sugar not a great feedstock? So we know that biology is really good at making all of these chemicals and reality, all the petrochemicals, all the fossil fuels, everything that's actually the product of biology is just biology that happened millions of years ago under the ground. So even things like natural gas came from biological processes. So we know biology is good at making those things. It's just we need a better starting point. And so in the U.S. anyway, this was around the time when methane started to become, you know, natural gas became very cheap and abundant. And so I was looking at, you know, things that we could do with this that would be better than burning it, right? Because today, you know, the best use for natural gas, you light a match, you burn it, you turn it into right. heat or energy. And that's, you know, better than letting it go directly into the atmosphere, right? Uh, sure. methane, yep. right? So it's certainly better to do that, but there should be better things we can do with that carbon. Because the sure. other thing, I, I didn't touch on it before, the other big difference between methane and CO2, right? CO2 is the definition of a waste product. It's the end product of combustion. It's the lowest energy form of carbon. Anything you want to do to modify, capture, sequester, and it, it always requires energy. And energy is expensive. So if you're starting right. with CO2, everything is uphill. Methane, though, is a fuel, right? Again, natural gas. Absolutely. It, it has value. I can, if I have methane Super today, versatile product, yeah. Exactly. And I can put it in a pipeline. I can, I can get paid for it, right? There is actual value to that methane. So if we can capture that energy and that carbon and we can turn it into valuable products, we can create better incentives. We can, you know, let the 
agricultural products stay as food and we can turn the natural gas into things that actually displace other forms of carbon. And again, we can keep it out of the atmosphere. So it should be a win-win across all cases. And so started looking at, well, what are the biological systems that can actually, because we're, we're very familiar with sugar as a feedstock for biological systems, right? You know, all of us, I think, are familiar with yeast, right? And you feed right. yeast sugar, you get alcohol, you get bread, right? These are all, you know, great things and probiotics and your yogurt, right? All, all of these things. And we, we think of those organisms and yeast and bacteria as eating sugars, which they do. And so the question is, well, you know, can you find the same thing for methane? And in the end, this you know, short answer is yes, right? And and the thing is, like in nature, there's no such thing as waste, right? The, the output of one process right. in nature is the food for the next one. And if there's energy there and available, something will evolve to use it because that's what you know living things do. And so it turns out, you know, methane is no different. And there are these organisms in the soil that we call MEMS that are basically there to eat methane, and they, they eat that methane as it's their only source of carbon, it's their only source of energy. And just as an analogy, right, we, everybody's familiar with trees and you know, plants and we think, right. well, plants eat CO2 and they pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. Right. Again, the difference is that they need energy, right? So the, the plants yeah. are taking the energy from the sun and they're using that to take the CO2. So their energy and, and carbon are coming from different sources. The sure. MEMS have actually been around longer than plants. They're, they're older than, they've been on the planet millions of years longer than plants have been around, but they are microscopic and they live in the dirt. So we don't see them, we don't touch them, we can't, you know, we're not as familiar with them, even though they are just as natural as trees. And again, the difference is because the methane brings the energy along, they don't need sunlight to work, right? They're able to just live in the dirt. If they get access to methane, that gives them all of the nutrients and energy they need to survive and grow and, and basically consume this methane. And their normal role in the environment is actually to prevent methane from getting into the atmosphere. So they'll, they'll sit sure. in this sort of top layer of dirt and wherever there's decaying organic matter that's producing methane, they will sort of sit above that, eat the methane and prevent it from getting into the atmosphere in the first place. And so that's, you know, their normal role in the environment. They're there to feed everything else. They capture methane. Great. Um, you know, that's, that's exactly the type of natural cycle we want to promote, but yeah, so so being able to turn that into a industrial process is obviously a little bit more tricky. So we we spent started a company called Callista. We spent about ten years sort of working out the details of the biology, building an industrial process, and scaling that up. And we've uh, Callista has now gone and built a the world's largest alternative protein production facility plant in China. Produces twenty thousand tons of protein per year. Wow. With natural gas as the main, as the primary feedstock. So it's taking wow. pipeline gas coming in and high quality protein coming out. So, you know, that's, that's a, you know, clear demonstration that this works and works at scale. Yeah. I like to think that I've, you know, canvassed everything under the sun and, and climate and energy over the past three years, but I had not heard of that. So thank you for an introduction to something completely novel that yeah, I hadn't heard yeah, of. Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, so that, that process is up and running and works, but yeah, the, real scale of that is to displace animal feed and it displaces high quality fish meal and fish meal is also kind of an unsustainable resource right that because it's literally what it sounds like it's trawlers that go off the coast of right. um, south america and africa they scoop up anchovies and sardines out of the ocean 
they bring them back on, on land, grind them up, dry them down, and then you know that becomes the protein ingredient for a lot of animal feeds and, and aquaculture feeds. And so obviously, if you're scooping a lot of food, fish out of the ocean, that's not a very sustainable approach. But the process, again, at Callista is really about intensification, large-scale production of protein, and it really needs those concentrated sources of methane. But the thing is that the organisms out in the soil, in the dirt, like when they're, they're out there just growing in the field, they're not getting 99% pure methane at multiple atmospheres pressure coming out of a pipeline. That's not their normal environment and food. And they, they are really good at essentially just taking methane directly out of the air, very low concentrations and turning that into nutrients in the soil that again feed the other microorganisms feed the plants and that's what led to the the starting of windfall is the, the realization that hey we can really mimic this natural cycle in a much better way we can find uses for methane that that create localized valuable products that can drive a profitable business model without needing to rely on subsidies or external carbon credits or other factors yeah, so let's let's tie it all back to kind of windfall bio in 2024. Yeah, I know we've kind of touched on it in a lot of ways, but you know, maybe to distill it down and bring it back to make it abundantly clear for the folks listening in. How do you anticipate sort of this working at the windfall bio level? With what types of customers are you working and sort of how's the business model coming together? Yep. So, and honestly, the business model was kind of the biggest innovation in this whole process. Again, as we said, we use natural organisms. And, and from that respect, we don't see, a, there's not a lot of technology risk. So in the, in the same way, right, you plant a tree, it grows, you, you right. know it had to have <laughs> absorbed a bunch of CO2 because that's the only thing it can grow from. So when we, we grow these organisms, we know they're eating methane, they can't eat anything else. And we know they're they're preventing that from getting into the atmosphere. And we know they're producing the products that they need to produce. So the customers that we go after, so just say the organisms that we use, the MEMS, they don't care where the methane comes from. You know, a molecule of CH4, if it comes from a cow, if it comes from a rice paddy, if it comes from an oil and gas facility, if it comes from, you know, a landfill. Decomposition of biomass or something like that. Yeah, because yeah, one, methane comes from everywhere, right? And that's right. and that's really the challenge is it's coming from both natural sources and man-made sources. Again, the atmosphere doesn't care where that molecule originated from. It's going to warm the atmosphere exactly the same amount. So we are interested in capturing all sources of methane and the organisms we use, right? All of that is food to them. So regardless of where it came from, they see it as food. If they come into contact with it, they will eat it. Again, that's what living things like to do. Full stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're really good at both eating food and making more organisms, right? So it's a, it's a win-win on that regard. But so the, the industries we work with are extremely broad from agriculture to oil and gas, again, to waste management, landfills, because, again, methane comes from all of these different sources. Right. So our business model also then has to be very flexible because while the methane is the same, the industries are different. The infrastructure on the ground is different. The operators and the training level and, and the expertise and the capital available are all different. Right. The concentrations of methane. And are the concentrations yeah. of methane are, are different. So the, yeah, the intensity, the flow rates, sorry, thinking about, you know, large natural gas fired power plants, right. And the, the flow of gas coming out the back versus the flow of gas coming from a cow barn ventilation system, like orders of magnitude different. Yeah. So how do you engineer to make sure those things work? So you know, where we've come 
down to is, is really streamlining our business model such that we sell the microbes and we provide the support for the operator, whoever, you know, whatever industry they're in, to help them perform the best practices, get the gas flows to the organisms in a mode that gives them enough time to eat it. Because that's the biggest sure. thing. If you have a gas flow at 500 cubic meters per second and <laughs> you know, like you, you've got some, you know, a little pile of dirt, right? There's just not enough time for for them to eat the food before it blows out into the atmosphere so we need to engineer those solutions get them it's all about residence time but the each individual operator can adapt that and customize it for their own facility and they so again we sell them the microbes they capture their methane and the organisms um, the mems turn that into nitrogen containing fertilizer on site Understood. Yeah. And if it's something like a dairy farm or a rice farm where they're using a lot of fertilizer, they don't right. need us for anything else, right? They're just going to, they're going to capture their own methane that immediately turns into nitrogen for them. They spread it on their own field and they end up saving money on the fertilizer they would have bought anyway. So for the, the farmers that we talk to in those areas today with the pricing and the, the things that we're putting in, we're seeing that at least in North America, farmers would be expecting to save about 50% on the absolute cost of nitrogen in the fertilizers that they would have bought anyway. So by just putting this in, again, they're reducing methane going to the atmosphere, which is great. But what they get paid on is they're actually buying less fertilizer and they're putting less ammonia, less urea, less nitrate into their fields, which has the add-on benefit of less runoff, less eutrophication, right. and less nitrous oxide, going back to your, your earlier point. So that's all a complete win-win for, for those farmers. They're saving money. It's more efficient for their field. It's better for the environment and it's better for the climate. For right. you know the the landfills and the oil and gas operators, the people with you know they have a lot of methane and they have way more methane than most you know small dairy farms or or, or things of that nature. Sure, but they obviously don't plant a lot of crops, right? They don't they don't use a lot of fertilizer. Yeah, they don't have an immediate way to kind of save money on on their fertilizer cost. Right, right, exactly. So for those facilities, we also offer the option for us to buy the fertilizer from them, so we can pick that up take it to a distributor and have it sold to farmers. So it still creates a revenue stream and it becomes, it's a profitable operation for that oil and gas facility or, or landfill or, or wherever, you know, that, that source of production is. But essentially we can turn every source of methane now into a fertilizer production hub and provide local sources of organic fertilizer. And I say organic, it's both in the marketing sense of, you know, where you go to the grocery store and you see organic labeled produce but also from the chemistry sense. So again, this is not ammonia, this is not nitrate. These are carbon nitrogen biomolecules that are extremely healthy for soils and plants. This is what plants normally see when they're out in the wild, right? If you go sample soils in a forest, there's not a lot of ammonia floating around, right? You know, even though <laughs> you know, we farmers you know, use ammonia because that's the industrial source of nitrogen from Haber-Bosch and things like that, Right. It's cheap and convenient and, and concentrated and easy to transport. And, you know, plants can use it. But today, you know, typical nitrogen use efficiencies for ammonia is only about 50%. So when you put ammonia right. in your field, only about half the molecules actually end up in the crops. And the rest of it runs off or turns into a nitrous oxide and things like that. So again, ammonia is not the best form of nitrogen. And in fact, you know, the organic nitrogen seems to have significantly higher efficiencies. And again, is way better for other things. So that product that we're producing is great. The challenge with that type of organic nitrogen is it's less concentrated. Um, ammonia 
again, it's NH3, so all the mass is nitrogen. So when you're right. paying to ship it across the world, you want it to be as concentrated as possible so you're not paying a lot of money. The organic right. stuff is less concentrated, and so it's more expensive to ship. And so this idea then of, of small local production where you know every local landfill now becomes a fertilizer production site that's able to sell to its surrounding farms who now have access to better quality fertilizer, cheaper fertilizer, and you get around a lot of the issues with global transport and supply chain. So one thing we saw in, I think it was 2022, 2021, over the last couple of years, fertilizer prices actually went up hundred times. Yeah. Yeah. There was a massive spike when you have a lot supply. of disruption. Yeah, exactly. So farmers have realized that those types of supply chains are very dangerous to their own bottom line as well. So having local production around this makes absolute sense for them. And so then again, we can create a revenue stream for the landfills. They're great. You know, that it absolutely incentivizes them to put this in place. Local farmers love to have, you know, high quality sources of local fertilizer that they have, you know, complete control over. They're not related to wars and supply chain disruptions and right. those types of things. And so it's a win-win all throughout. And you'll notice in none of this did I say anything about subsidies or or credits, right? <laughs> right. So that's that for us is a key part of this equation, right? And and it comes back to this idea that methane has energy, methane has value. And that's what allows this whole thing to work is because we have the energy from that methane that's allowing the capture of nitrogen in the production of fertilizer, that drives the economics of the process. And this can be then a profitable operation for everyone in that value chain without relying on external artificial subsidies that may be there, may not be there. And so for us, that's a key part when we think about what are technologies that can actually scale to global levels that can have impacts on climate, they have to be self-sustaining and sustainable. And the, I'll use, you know, the first definition of a sustainable business is one that is profitable, right? If you, if right. the system doesn't make money, the business doesn't profit, it doesn't matter how good for the environment it's going to be, that business is not going to be around. It's not going to actually have an impact. And it has to be sustainable, has to be valuable to a whole suite of stakeholders who can find the same benefit from it. And yeah, I love that reframe. So often when we think of sustainability at this point, you know, it calls all of kind of the green elements to mind, but it's also, you know, good to re-expand that and be like, okay, like sustainability also means for the people out of working at a company, you know, is that sustainable for their lifestyle? Is it generative to their energy and their passion? Yeah, there's so many different things that are subsumed by the, by the word sustainability. And thank you for that that overview. There were so many interesting things that came out of it just to, you know, try to catalog some of the potential benefits here. Obviously, there's significant potential to mitigate methane emissions, which is important. I also really enjoy the reframe, which I often come back to of, you know, this is ultimately like a resource that we should be valorizing. It's not, yes. methane in and of itself is not, you know, bad. Like we, did, we can't blame methane for, you know, the global warming that it has in the atmosphere. We just haven't really learned how to, engineer the systems and the structures in society to make full use of it in a circular beneficial capacity versus one that's net negative. And, you know, again, we've touched on some other very valuable components of this, which is, you know, synthetic fertilizers are important. They feed something like half of the global population. Without them, we'd be completely lost. But we do need to find ways to create fertilizers in a more sustainable, again, fashion to continue feeding the world populace without producing nitrous oxide emissions, which have something like a 300x global warming potential factor compared to carbon. And also, as you said, 
have other negative environmental impacts on water and stuff like that from agricultural runoff. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And I don't want to come across as saying synthetic fertilizers are evil and we need to get rid of all synthetic fertilizers, right? That is absolutely right. not the message. Or we, like you said, fertilizers are critical. We need them to grow crops. It's just, you know, we, yeah, we need a, a blend and a mix and to do things, you know, there are good reasons why ammonia is a, the fertilizer that everyone uses, and we should be using that and other things. And again, the, the problems that come with ammonia are typically when it is over-applied, when you put too much on the field. Right. And, and if it's the only thing you have, then you're always going to put too much on. So we see our product very much as a blend, right? You, you need a little bit of ammonia for, because you need highly available you know, if you want crops to germinate quickly and, and grow fast and produce, which we all do, or you need that ammonia at the beginning where it's very highly available. But again, if you're only putting on in the beginning, then it's going to run off by the time that the crops are, are big. So having that sort right. of mix of organic and, and synthetic nitrogen can be hugely important depending on the specific crop that you're growing. So it's, it's a good point. I, I don't want to come across, you know, we're not, we're no, not. Oh yeah, I, I wouldn't anything. say that you yeah. did by any means. Yeah. There are good reasons why that's being used and why it's there and why it will still be there. So, yeah, we're trying to fit in and again, create value in the system, not tell people what they <laughs> should be doing or what they shouldn't be doing. That's not our role. Yeah. And I know that, you know, you're constructing your business in a conscientious way to not rely necessarily on public sector tailwinds or subsidies or carbon credit, carbon equivalent credit markets. But I think it is worth briefly noting that there are also, you know, significant tailwinds, especially if you look at certain European countries. Yep. The Netherlands, for instance, is thinking very critically about how to make their entire agricultural complex more sustainable. So there certainly is also public sector top-down pressure coming that's ultimately, you know, forcing farmers to think about how do we make our system more sustainable. And that's a very difficult thing for them to navigate because a lot of farming is ultimately a commodity razor thin margin business. And so fundamentally, these folks need to be empowered with new solutions to be able to continue to stay in business, to continue to feed the world populace while also navigating some of the, you know, for them, it's more of a headwind almost of like, okay, you're telling us we need to cut our methane emissions by X amount by this date. Someone please tell us how you expect us to do that. You know? Right. Right. And yeah. And we see that kind of over and over again, you know, a lot of there's technologies on the market to reduce these things, but they're pure cost, right? So, and if you're asking a farmer to just pay more for operations, like you said, razor thin commodity margins, they are also risk averse for very good reason, right? If you, the, right. the quote I've heard, right? If you've only got, you know, 30 or 40 chances to make your product in your lifetime, right? That That's it. That's like, that's how many growing <laughs> yeah. seasons, right? You, you, and you know, if you screw up, you're, those are big impacts uh, on your bottom line, on your total productivity. So there's a big hesitance there for, again, very good reasons to change what they've been doing in different ways because it can have huge negative impacts if it goes wrong. So, yeah, so, I mean, you're right. There's absolutely some areas that we don't want a business model that depends on subsidies right. to work. But certainly if there are subsidies there, if there are credits in place, we certainly see those as beneficial and we'll take advantage of them. It will help our customers take advantage of them to the extent we can. There are other sources of methane. You know, we, we can talk about a landfill and you know lots of farms that, that are nearby to landfills and things like that. But when you think about, say, like an oil rig out in the middle of the ocean, right, it's going to be hard to get fertilizer from that site out you know, to a farm somewhere else. 
So yeah. those are cases that it might be, it might make sense for, you know, governments or corporations, you know, incentivize people to actually capture that methane. And then, um, you know, because you, you're not going to be able to use that fertilizer, there isn't going to be an economic driver to capture that particular source. Right. So we also see opportunities for large scale applications out in the environment. So when you think about Arctic permafrost, right, and the amount of methane that's coming out of that as it, as the, everything warms, it is pretty scary. And these are the things that that have the opportunity to potentially create these massive tipping points, right? Because the the right. Arctic starts warming, it releases methane, creates more warming, which then melts more permafrost, right? And you have these positive yeah. feedback Cascading cycles. Effects. Yeah, yeah. And those are the things that can drive massive amounts of climate change in very short amount of, amounts of time. And right. yeah, like you said, when you start thinking about that, I get that th those are the things that keep me up at night that, those are the scary things yeah well that's a question that i would have, would have asked later of the things that keep you up at night and we've already answered one and, yeah. and a lot of them overlap with mine yeah i'd love to you know to bring this back again to 2024 maybe we can talk about it in, in kind of the terms of go-to-market strategy and some of the first customers that you're working with because perhaps it would be useful to sort of just like we've certainly done it in some capacity but to kind of paint a picture of you know, first or second or third modal customer profile of the stakeholders that you're working with and sort of exactly what the deployment looks like on the on the ground level. Yeah. So, you know, we use the example of a dairy farm quite a bit. And I think, you know, dairy farms make a lot of sense because they have the full value chain on site. So we think about a dairy, typically you've got cows in a barn, the cows are burping, exhaling methane as part of their enteric emissions. And so that goes into the you know, the air in the barn, and there's usually a ventilation system that's blowing the air through. So you know the cows have fresh air and all that. So you have a stream of air with some methane in it. The cows are also producing manure constantly, and the dairies typically flush that manure out of the barn, so using water, and then they separate the solids from the liquids. The liquids go into a lagoon where basically that turns into the equivalent of an anaerobic digester and they it produces it also produces methane. And right. in these situations, it's about 50-50 roughly. So about half the methane the cows produce are coming from the burping. Half of it is coming from these manure lagoons. And then the solids from the manure, though, get put into piles that are composted. And so okay. the farmer will put those into a pile on site. They'll have somebody go out and turn those compost piles at twice a week or so with a backhoe. And then they will, um, after a couple of months of composting, then the farmer takes that compost, spreads it on the field. And because they're, they're also growing crops to feed to the cows, you know, alfalfa or grass or, or corn or something of that nature. Uh, but there's usually not enough nitrogen in that compost. And so they're also buying synthetic fertilizers to blend with the compost sure. to get the enough nitrogen so the crops grow efficiently. And again, that saves them money on feed. So that's a nice sure. circular version. So in that scenario, the compost actually turns into a great home for the MEMS. Right? They're able, because they normally live in dirt, compost isn't that different from dirt. It's, and we want the compost to be aerated and exposed to as much air and oxygen as possible because that's what composting is and that allows the breakdown of that material to make it a good fertilizer. So the farmer buys the MEMS from us, blends it into the compost, the solids, the manure solids as they're being separated and formed into compost piles. And then essentially the farmer can then connect the airflow from the barn and the manure lagoon to blow through okay. that compost pile and the, the MEMS live in the compost. They pull the methane out of the air, 
and they put that carbon and nitrogen directly into the compost pile. The farmer then, when they go to spread the compost on the field, they test how much nitrogen is there. And then based on how much is there, they buy the less synthetic nitrogen. So when they blend, they're still adding the exact same number you know, of molecules of nitrogen onto the field. Just more of it is now organic, less of it is purchased. So that's where they, they end up saving that money. So it's very simple, fits right into what they're doing and doesn't require them to change practices pretty much at all. Yeah, I mean, we're also working on uh, methane coming from landfills and, and waste management, some anaerobic digestion projects, and then that, which is in kind of manure and, and waste management more broadly than just dairies. Right. And then also really excited about the opportunities in oil and gas. The EPA has actually released a, a bunch of new regulations on methane emissions for oil and gas operators in the United States. And that we think is going to really be an opportunity for us. So you know, there's finally a strong incentive for these oil and gas players to reduce a lot of their fugitive emissions, reduce a lot of their incidental emissions. Right. And yeah, that's something we can we can certainly apply our technology to. Yeah, it feels like in, in 2024, sitting here now, there's a really strong confluence of tailwinds behind methane. There's more attention being paid to it. There are some yep. new policies coming online. And as I know you and I have already discussed, there's really like this interesting inherent difference between something like methane and carbon dioxide, where methane is packed with value and it's packed with energy. It's a cornerstone global commodity. It's already used across a bunch of processes. So ideally, whether it's for the way that you work with people or even just at the most basic level of oil and gas operators, like there's already a built-in incentive to retain more methane in value chains versus letting it escape into the atmosphere. There is, but <laughs> you know, even alongside of that, a, a lot of it is not being retained, right? So, right. so IEA has been like every single year. So one, I agree with everything you said. I'm just like the, the counter and, and yeah, the, thing, the nuance is great. It becomes a little bit counterintuitive. Like I, for the last 10 years, IEA has published a list of methane sources ranked by the dollar value of the methane that could be captured relative to the cost for capturing it. And you know, roughly 50% of the methane they track is negative and with the idea that if a company captured it, they would be saving money. And yet every single year, it's exactly the same. Right? So, <laughs> or gross, so you would, probably. Like, yeah. So you would think like if the incentives were aligned in the right case, right, you know, after the first year, you wouldn't have seen any of those negative value methane anymore. And the fact that it still persists year after year after year tells you that the calculation is, isn't quite right. So even though in theory they could get more money from capturing that methane, generally there's an opportunity cost and there's right. a cost, right? And so if you're an oil company and I, you know, I have you know, a million dollars to invest, I can make a small return by capturing the methane that I'm wasting today, or I can make a big return by opening up a new oil field or something right. like that. And so those are the calculations that are really being made as opposed to, can I save money on this methane? Yeah. So this is why these new EPA regulations are so important because they're actually going to start penalizing the oil and gas companies for those emissions. So it's it's no longer just a, well, you know, it's, it's an opportunity cost. Now it's an actual fine that, you know, if you do this, you're going to be paying money directly to EPA for, for doing it. So hopefully they'll start changing the calculus. Yeah, I appreciate that nuance because I can see how someone would have potentially heard the point I, I made about methane's inherent value and then still ask the exact same question that you did. It's like, well, yes, that's true. And yet methane emissions still rise globally each year. So we right. need... <laughs> 
we need a confluence of many factors to actually begin to move this needle. Technology, what you all are doing is one of them. Policy, the inherent value that methane has can certainly help. And then there is, of course, also the attention piece. It feels like in the past couple of years, that's improved a little bit. People are certainly thinking and talking about methane more, and we're sitting here today to try to do some of that work. But even that, you know, I saw an interesting statistic yesterday that was a bit broader, but it was some early polling around, you know, 2024 presidential election in the US. And there was a stat from the morning consult where they asked folks, you know, within the past week, have you heard about this specific issue? And if so, have you, you know, was the news positive or negative in your perspective? And with respect to climate change, 57% of people hadn't heard about it at all as an issue in the past week. And that was striking to me. It's like, it's one thing for us to sit in our echo chamber and talk about things that we're excited about. It's another for these things to actually break through to the layman or the dairy farmer or the person operating a landfill. Yeah. And I think the most important thing for me, yeah, I I think you're right. So methane is definitely becoming more prominent in the messaging, but also most importantly for me, it's methane discussed as methane as opposed to just CO2 equivalents. Right. And historically, you know, we've just been using the language like, oh, you can just turn everything into an equivalent of CO2, which yeah, you know, and what you know j- basically just implies that CO two is really the most important <laughs> and only important thing. But now, yeah, people are talking about you know, methane reductions as methane reductions, and I think that's really important. Going back to what you said before, like there is a fundamental difference in the mechanism of action, the rates, the, just the turnover, and the impact in the atmosphere of methane versus CO two. Right, so, and you lose all of that nuance by creating some formula to turn it into a CO2 equivalent. <laughs> yeah. Another time we could talk about this for hours because that's something I think about a ton too. It's like in that comparative calculation, I think it's just worth noting for listeners that the way that you would translate the global warming of impact, global warming impact of methane or any greenhouse gas really to compare to carbon dioxide is very, very sensitive to the time frame that you choose. So if you look at a super long-term perspective Carbon dioxide is unequivocally sort of the most important driver of global warming at the atmospheric level. But the shorter time frame that you concern yourself with, the more that that calculus can really change pretty significantly. And we so often talk about 2050, say, as a date by which we want XYZ to happen with respect to climate change. And that's 26 years from now. And yet most of the kind of global warming equivalent calculations that are made use a hundred year time frame. So sometimes there's some misalignment in terms of the kind of discount rates and mechanisms for making these calculations that do really impact policymaking and resource allocation that persist today, even if, you know, they were first enshrined 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And yeah, it makes no sense to be looking at something with a hundred year time frame when your target is, and you said 2050, there, we see a lot of targets for 2030. Sure. Right. And, <laughs> and you know, why would you look at something and value things at a hundred year time frame? And, you know, we need to be around um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so in the hundred years. So if you miss all your targets in the short term, it doesn't matter what your long-term targets are. It's always nice that attract economists love the idea of a fungible token and putting everything <laughs> into one, one specific number and it makes comparisons really easy and we can wrap our head around it. But if it doesn't actually reflect reality, it's not, even if it's convenient, it's not useful. So. Yeah, it's like I, I deeply appreciate the impulse to want to make, you know, stand to use standardized terms. And I even just think about something like GDP being such a prevalent measure of economic strength or health of any economy. And it's like, well, you standardize everything to one measure. It certainly reflects a lot of things about an economy, but by no means does it reflect everything. You know, folks are going to optimize for production. The more that you focus on GDP, 
And in the same way, the more that we focus on CO2E or the CO2 equivalent of any greenhouse gas, like that's always a, to some extent going to enshrine more focus on carbon dioxide when in reality, the problem is much more complex. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, again, I, I was actually trying to get windfall funded and started about eight years ago was the, the original pitch. And, you know, just couldn't get anybody excited about a methane related technology. And everyone would say, like, we have a mandate to, to deal with carbon dioxide and to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But methane is just not not a focus for us, which is Again, it's exactly what you're saying. It, it you know this focus on CO2e creates this really perverse negative incentive to only deal with CO2. And even today, I you know there are still groups of people I, I go and talk to, and they're like, "Yeah, we're we're really focused on taking carbon out of the atmosphere, but we don't care about methane." And it just completely misses the point that meth one and methane is carbon. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's but, still got um, carbon in it. Yeah, but so again, the, and the, it's just become this, you know, carbon is carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is the only form of carbon that matters. And it's just putting these blinders on and, and really restricting the discourse and the focus. So, yeah. The words and that we really use. Even, yeah. I mean, even decarbonization has become sort of a stand in for global climate action. And I, you know, I do my best to try to remind folks that carbon dioxide, not the only driver of global warming, global warming, hardly the only problem subsumed within climate change. But, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. So that, that's where the more nuanced view, I think, yeah, it's important. And, and again, I, I'm go back to the positive. I think people right. are starting stake real, you know, stakeholders, government regulators, all of that. The language is starting to expand, and the focus has expanded. And we are, you know, we do have, you know, COP28 bunch of announcements and, and targets specifically around methane and methane reductions. Not talking about CO2es. EPA's new regulations are creating fines for methane emissions that are based specifically on tons of methane emitted, not CO2Es. And yeah, so I think it's certainly moving in the right direction. And I think it's up to us to continue that. And and not just methane, you know, there's other things. You know, <laughs> nitrous oxide is another huge driver of climate. Um, Definitely. Well, which has no carbon. So it again, it need to expand the language. So yeah, all of these things are important. Yeah. And in the vein of, you know, being really mindful of the targets that we set. I'd be curious, you know, as we sit here at the beginning of a new year in 2024 to talk about goals you have for windfall for the year, you know, core KPIs, really just like what's front of mind as you think about 2024. And then we can expand to 2025 and, and beyond as well too. Yeah. So for 2024, we're engaged now with a, a number of customers across multiple different verticals. And what we're seeing is really the demand is, and this this is not a bad problem to have at all, but the demand has far outstripped what we were expecting. <laughs> Excellent. And so, yeah, we've got lots of customers in different verticals, different countries, geographies, all literally all around the world who are excited about the technology, want to get it on site, getting it deployed. And, you know, that's great. Again, we're getting the traction we want, but supplying all those customers is a challenge because sure. it's certainly it's moving faster than we were expecting. So for our perspective, our major focus on 2024 is really building out our supply chain and manufacturing capabilities. So being able to produce enough material and then getting that material to the customers in all these different areas. So you know, it's, again, not the worst problem to have. It's something that we've done in the past at other companies in other contexts. So it's not something that we think is unachievable, sure. but we're looking at you know needing to scale up many orders of magnitude in, yeah. in a very short period of time. 
So that anytime you're doing that, that's always a risk. That's always a challenge. So that's really what we're going to be spending the vast majority of our time on. Yeah. I don't know if it was Jeff Bezos specifically, but he certainly built a business empire around kind of having a core perspective on being, you know, like one of the main things that runs the world is getting your logistics right. And so it yep. sounds like yep. that's front and center for you all in 2024. Front, absolutely. Yeah. And and again, not not a bad problem. And, and it's reflective of traction with the customers and going back to what we were talking about with recognition of methane as a real problem. We are seeing a lot more people interested in reducing their methane footprint specifically. So again, I think it's a, it's a great sign that the industry and, and the perception is moving in the right direction. But again, yeah, it's just a, it's something we need to work through and, and just need to do it faster than we were initially planning on. Yeah, it makes sense. Are there other kind of key hurdles or roadblocks that come to mind for you as you think about the year? Obviously, that's plenty for one man and one team to focus on what we just covered. But <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and we're growing our team. So we're trying to bring in more. We need more people to address the the demand that we're, we're seeing. We are, you know, looking at bunch of different verticals. I know we talked a lot about dairies, but we work on in landfills and oil and gas in waste management. Methane comes from so many different places right within both in you know both man-made sources, natural sources, you know waste management byproducts right. of oil and gas and, and other operations. So there, there's just so many different areas that we can apply to and that's part of why our customer base is expanding <laughs> faster than we expected. But that, you know, it was it adapting the technology, adapting the product specifically to each of those different industries, doing pilot projects for different customers, making sure that it works well, optimizing it within each of those different verticals. You know, so the, the specific deployment on a landfill is obviously it's going to be a right. little bit different than a dairy. And so just making sure we can meet our technology KPIs and productivity goals and, and, you know, create the value for the customer in each of those different areas and, and making sure it's, you know, customized and tweaked in and works well is, is, is certainly something that we're working on. Yeah. And I imagine that like measuring the impact of the solution can vary somewhat by application, or is that something that's actually a bit easier than some of the kind of product specification? I'd say for most of them, it's a bit easier. I, you know, there's certainly some applications. You know, if we, especially we talk you know, land applications and rice farming is one that we're we've looked at a lot. That's really hard to measure just because it's so distributed and there's not a lot of infrastructure available typically in the areas where you'd be growing rice. But for most of the like a landfill, for example, tends to have a fairly defined stream of gas that we can measure. The methane going in into our biological systems, we measure methane coming out, we measure the nitrogen that the system captures. So we can usually track quite well the methane that's being consumed, sure. which is then methane that's not going to the atmosphere. And the nice part, you know, going back to the comparison of methane versus CO2, once methane is consumed, thermodynamics says it doesn't go back, right? So there is no long-term you know, with CO2, right, you capture it, you have to put it in the ground, you have to certify that it's going to be stored locked yeah. up for 100 years and everything to be able to claim that your credit is real or your your impact is real. Yeah, you have to get a permit for a class six well in Wyoming or Louisiana or one of the few states where that's where the state actually has the jurisdiction to do it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, all of those things are, are challenging. But, but with methane, again, once you, if you take the methane and you turn it into something that's not methane, by definition, it's always it's going downhill energetically. So the thermodynamics says nothing wants to go uphill. 
<laughs> and so once you turn it into something that's not methane, it doesn't go back. I hadn't thought about that previously. Yeah. Yeah. That permanence is, is an important feature of any kind of climate impact technology. You know, how permanent is that? And transforming methane, consuming methane is 100% the most permanent solution that you can come up with. Hmm, so, love it. so from that side, it, it, it works really well. Yeah. If you have a good book or paper or reference on that, I'll probably bug you for that post, uh, post call. But yeah, I mean, it also sounds like, you know, we, we kind of spoke to, or you spoke to that. Yes. Methane does come from many, many sources. And that's certainly true. But what's exciting for me and sort of hearing about y'all's progress is it sounds like you have a lot of really meaningful ones covered. You know, if you look globally, enteric fermentation and Kind of farming is one of the most major sources. Oil and gas is probably pretty equal or close to number one and certainly is the second largest source, if not the largest source. Landfills are a really meaningful one, wastewater treatment. And obviously there are others in the man-made category. We hit on rice, there's coal mining. Hopefully the coal mining one solves itself a little bit as the globe makes some efforts to shift off of coal. It certainly won't solve itself inherently just by virtue of that, but... No. Well, and, and the thing about coal is the, I mean, the coal will emit whether you're actively mining or not and, and abandoned wells or sorry, abandoned mines, uh, orphaned mines, you know, even when you shut it down and stop mining, they are still major sources of methane right out there. So it's not something that just goes away because we stopped using coal. Good point. So that that's something that absolutely we're looking at it and, you know, as a way to kind of mitigate the long-term impact of the existing mines. Makes um, sense. So, you know, and absolutely, you know, we should shut them down. We should stop using coal, but we also need to do something to uh, <laughs> reduce the, <laughs> those emissions going forward. Yeah. And, you know, in rice farming doesn't really get talked about as much. I mean, oh my just, God. even in your list, but it, rice farming is number two in agriculture right behind enteric emissions. Right. I mean, it, it is a big emitter and it's all over the world and it's really, and again, I would say, it's something we're looking at. That's probably one of the more challenging aspects for us to go after just because it is so distributed. Yeah. But, you know, if, if a technology is going to work there, it, you know, a biological technology like ours that is able to work in a more distributed fashion, I think it's going to be one of the better alternatives to it. Now, so, yeah, the, the challenge is like every single one of those sources you mentioned, the, the format is a little bit different. You know, methane is methane, but the form that the gas comes in, the flow rates, the concentrations, like all of those details matter. And like, and how do you, how do you plug our technology into that infrastructure and have it work right. and have it create value for, for the person who is actually deploying it on their site yes. is a little bit different. And that's where, again, the, this sort of customization comes in and us you know, needing to understand each of those industries, making sure we can work with the operators in a way that makes sense to them. And again, our philosophy is that we want to create value. We want to create profit for that operator, create the inherent incentive that makes them want to capture that methane, not just for climate, but because it's actually good for their business and create, you know, you know impacts their bottom line in a positive way. Yeah. And so we, for that, we do have to understand their operations, right? You can't just tell, you know, back to throw it over the fence and, and tell them to figure it out because you know, that, that's not a successful strategy. Yeah, no, we had, we had kind of touched on it earlier in a really trenchant way, at least from my perspective, about how when you think about sustainability, so often folks think that that's really just like a green thing. But you'd already made the perfect point that like when you think about a business, profit is the key to sustainability as well. Yep. <laughs> and so yep, exactly. if that's not yep. there, then it's going to be a Sisyphean uphill, uphill effort. And yeah, we could go through the rest of the list of 
methane emission sources for another hour probably and i could put you on the spot about how you're going to think about termites or something like that but <laughs> we don't have to yep. get into that um in closing i always i'm always just you know excited to ask folks like yourself that have such deep perspective and and also broad perspective you know beyond methane beyond windfall what else as you look ahead to 2024 is exciting to you in climate or even outside of climate yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think there are a lot of really interesting approaches that are, are being taken. I mean, I think yeah, and when we go back and look at you know, what are the major impacts on climate today, you know, yeah, methane is really important. The other one is is energy generation, and there's some overlap between those two. But energy generation in particular, I think, is where you know most of certainly where most of the, the actual CO two going into the atmosphere is coming. Uh, and we, we touched on things like coal and being phased out, and that's that's great. But um, it still take yeah, a long time. <laughs> it's still yeah, yeah it's still going to take a long time. And there's things that we need to do to to speed that up. Still the number one fuel for electricity generation globally, unfortunately. Yep, and and. It, has been increasing in some parts of the world as well, which yep. is, is again, counterproductive. So we need to find more and better ways to get, I think, you know, a lot of battery storage and electrification is important. But like you said, yeah, if you use coal to generate the electricity, it doesn't help. So we uh, personally, I'm a big fan of, of nuclear and, and driving more in investment in, in nuclear. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, in terms of Carbon capture technologies. I think the thing that's getting a lot of interest right now is the rot enhanced rock weathering. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's an interesting application. I think you know it technically works. I'm not quite sold on the logistics part where you're you're trucking a lot of heavy rocks around the country and, and crushing up a lot of rocks in in an energy intensive process and, yeah. and getting that to work. So. I'm hopeful that I, I'm wrong in my estimates on that, and they're they're able to find a way to move that stuff around in a way that makes sense and, and makes the whole thing pencil out in a carbon negative way. Right. But uh, on methane, I think we are seeing a lot more new technologies coming forward. I think you know windfall is one of several. So sure. we're seeing a lot of sort of plasma-based technologies. Seeing some work on iron. Was it ISA iron salt aerosols um, being used for improving oxidation of methane in, in the atmosphere? Right, some direct atmospheric applications. Yep, yep. And and again, a little skeptical on the energy balance for that with the amount of energy it takes to put a bunch of iron into the atmosphere. But you know, you know, from a chemical standpoint, chemistry works, and and um, it's the normal way that methane is actually being broken down in the atmosphere anyway. So you know, from a theoretical standpoint, it, it seems attractive. So. Yeah, I think, again, it comes back to the idea. I think methane is finally getting put in the spotlight a lot more. And alongside of that, then we're seeing a lot of new technologies that are up and coming that weren't getting any attention previously. Yep. So, so I'm excited about that. And, you know, I think I, I hope that windfall <laughs> will be one of many potential solutions because the methane problem is big and the climate problem is big. And yep. you know, there's not going to be one silver bullet that solves everything. Right. So. Yeah, well, I'm super excited about it. I'm certainly rooting for you all. I'm rooting for all the other folks that are thoughtfully and from kind of a well-balanced and uh, well-motivated place tackling any component of the larger climate challenge. And yeah, I mean, methane's a massive story for me in 2024, and I'm excited to to do my part to make sure that folks like yourself still continue to get more attention, resource allocation, et cetera. And in that vein, you'd called it out earlier, but I want to make sure that the calls to action are abundantly clear for folks. One of them, it sounds like, is, you know, you've got some open roles that you're hiring for. So 
for the listeners who have stuck around with us this far to whom we tip our caps uh, where's the right place to go to explore more about what you're doing keep up to speed and look at some of those roles and potentially even get in touch yeah, I think going to our website at windfall.bio is going to be the best way. And we have a contact form on the website as well. So anyone who's interested, can send us a note and we're, we're happy if, uh, to get in touch. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much, Josh. That's been a pleasure. And I'm confident that I'll be back in touch at some point this year to check in on some data on how it's uh, working out in the world. <laughs> yep, absolutely. We're, we'll be excited to share more as we continue. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon.